Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Good morning, everybody. Go to strengthguild.com, S-T-R-E-N-G-T-H-G-U-I-L-D.com. Scroll down to the Iron Radio Collections, and we've got new shirts and new banners for you to support the show. Everything from just a regular banner, regular shirt, to ones with sayings on them, like Lonnie's Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree shirt. And some news for you, we're going to have some contests for people who own these shirts and things. So if you support the show, we'll let you more on that later. So if you get in on these early, you can be one of the first people to win some prizes. So, thank you very much. Go check out the site, strengthguild.com. Scroll down to Iron Radio Collections and support the show. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiologist, and I'm a sports nutritionist, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. Hey, this is Phil Stevens. I run Strength Guild. I'm a powerlifter, Highland Games athlete. Just all around crazy guy. Hey, it's Dr. Mike Nelson, uh, owner of Extreme Human Performance, creator of the Flex Diet Cert, and faculty member at the Kerrig Institute. Right on. All right, everybody, yeah. we have um, questions and news coming at you today. It's building up. We're not going to get through all of the news here, but I've chosen a few, and we can bounce some of this um, off of everybody. Hopefully, if you like the analysis, right, that's kind of what we're trying to provide with this. It's one thing just to pair it some news. In fact, one of our news bits today, I wanted to actually discuss it because a fellow dietitian was sharing a bunch of stuff about food packaging and the information just lacked so much analysis. It was just sort of a parroting of what, you know, like the WHO is saying. And I'm like, that's, I guess that's helpful, but I want to talk about how it applies to us and, you know, thoughts and opinions. And um, Okay, but I digress. The, the question uh, this week was, is there a silver lining to this health crisis, right? And so um, we are talking before we hit record, everyone, but one of the things I see coming out of this is that you're probably going to see, and you know, this is sobering thought, but you're going to see a lot of fitness centers die and, and <laughs> go belly up. Um, we, we did an episode a, lo- a long time ago about uh, how to fail a gym startup, right? Because people open these expensive storefronts and they, they don't even have a client client base yet, a clientele. Uh, very much unlike the way you did it, Phil, right? Where, you know, starting in your garage and you built up this like hardcore mm-hmm. group and club. And so by the time you expand, your gym is full. <laughs> yeah. um, yep. But when these poorly, poorly conceptualized places come online, they go belly up. And then uh, right now, for example, you can't buy fitness equipment, I'm hearing. Like everybody is trying to buy dumbbells for home. But you watch. We're going to go from famine to feast come this autumn because with all these places going belly up, you know, there's going to be flood. Like you want cheap dumbbells? They're probably going to be all over the market. And in in a way, I know that sounds a little predatory, you know, (laughs) vulture-ish, but but you can actually stock up. I mean I've got a nice little – set up in my basement um i won't mind 
adding some pieces of equipment to that. And some of it's going to be big equipment, too, Phil, like maybe for mm-hmm. you. You know, like, wow, I can get that for one quarter cost at auction? Oh, yeah. Okay. I mean, put it, put it this way. Gold's Gym announced last night they're permanently closing 30 locations already. Oh, oh really? Yeah. Damn. Not, they are not reopening 30 locations. So. Oh. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, if they're taking the hit, smaller gyms are taking the hit. So. Yep. yep. And then, yeah, you can get some juicy yeah. stuff. Mike, I know you've got like a home setup too. You could probably pull some sweet ass, you know, fairly expensive type of equipment. The thing is, I think a lot of what we would buy probably wouldn't be the electronic stuff anyway, <laughs> you know, but I don't know, get a monolift or something yeah. for dirt. Yeah. I'm running out of space, unfortunately. <laughs> I, I told Jody and my wife I still have to get one car in at some point, which. Now it would take, you know, a while to get the car in, but it'll still go in, <laughs> even with the freezer and the 45 degree and the two by two rack and all the other stuff. So, <laughs> yeah, you know, there's this, close. we have these Good problems to have tolerant spouses, <laughs> right? <laughs> I've got like this uh, food lab set up uh, right next to in, in my office, you know, and, and I share the office with Kelly, right? My wife and um yeah, I'm just like, sorry, you know, just move those bottles, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. Yeah. Any, anyway. Don't ask what's in it. Right. Don't drink it. Yeah, don't, don't touch <laughs> that one. <laughs> um, what about you guys, Phil? Silver lining, just, you know, back to the question. Um, do you see upsides uh, to all this stay at home? And, you know, there's obviously there's a lot of negativity, whether it's for sickness or the economy. But I got to think there are certain parts of the economy that would boom or – some kind of silver lining. Well, I can tell you this right now: online sales are going crazy. Everybody's buying. Everybody's bored. I think mm. and buying stuff online. But uh, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, this is purely personal. But uh, a benefit to me is I'm getting more sleep than I have in years. So oh, I, don't yeah. have to get up at, I don't have to get up at four thirty a.m. to go to class. So, right. <laughs> you know. Yeah. I'm getting to see my family more, and you know getting some bicycle riding in and stuff like that. We're out here on our farm. So, yeah, we're just uh, – that, that part of it's nice, I yeah. suppose. That's a good call. Kelly and I are walking every day, like 30, 40-minute yeah. walk. Sometimes I'll put like a 30-pound dumbbell in a backpack, you know. So it's like a less goofy-looking X-vest. <laughs> I don't want to have yeah. to explain yeah. to people around the neighborhood, no, I'm not wearing a bulletproof vest. You know, I could just yeah. put in a yeah. discreet backpack. But, yeah, almost almost I daily. I X-vest and – Man, I had to stop wearing it because I got so many weird looks. <laughs> yeah, no, it's just um, unless you're clearly like on the pitch in a stadium or something, and you're obviously doing fitness stuff, but like just yeah. walking around your neighborhood. Uh, no, yeah. yeah, this was I have a X Vest story. They sent me one. This was when the company was new. They sent me one to try out, and I was living in Arlington, right next to the Pentagon, oh. right after nine, right after nine eleven, uh. <laughs> and. I was out walking in it in the dark, and all of a sudden, all these lights hit me and freeze! And it was like all these really? dudes armed with the gilded Humvees. They were in their Humvees and they rifled me down, and they're like, "Get out on the ground!" I was like, "Holy shit!" Oh my God. <laughs> I'm not wearing a bomb, right? Right. So, yeah, it it's was fitness a, equipment. It, it woke me up. So wow, they all had a good laugh. In the end, they all had a good laugh and sent me on my way. But uh, now was, you know, because they sent me one years ago. I remember and. I, I don't want to sound ungrateful. There are some benefits to that, right? Like when I put a 30-pound dumbbell in a backpack before I go for a hike, 
it's kind of hard on the backpack. It doesn't sit on my shoulders very well. At least the the X vest distributes the weight a little bit, you yeah. know, so you're not like leaning and aching. And so, I mean, there's that. But um, anyway, people, if you're not familiar, you can get these like what twenty, thirty, forty pound. I don't know how heavy they get, but you put little like uh, lead bars in them, kind of like all over the vest, and it just weighs you down, and you burn a lot of calories when you do your your cardio stuff. So. Uh, yeah. That's good for doing added weight on like dips and chin ups and that kind of stuff too. I I got crazy once and threw the forty pound X vest on and put like a hundred and forty pounds of chains on a deadlift just for giggles to see what would happen. That's so you. <laughs> I figure out it's overload. <laughs> Experiment. Yeah. 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 Uh, Mike, what about you? Silver linings. I mean, um, these are some pretty good ones we're coming up with. I think. Yeah, I mean, I've actually been, like, the past probably five days, I've been thinking about that more often. I haven't been on Facebook that much. I haven't watched anything on the news or anything about it at all. I, the couple places I looked for data, it didn't look like there was any new data coming through. So, like, there's nothing new, per se. Um, so, I've been thinking about when this is done or whenever it passes or whenever it's different or whatever marker you want to use for that. I have a feeling that people are going to look back, excluding, you know, obviously the the pandemic portion of it. But I think hopefully people will kind of reevaluate some of their life and time with family and what things are actually important. And I think anytime you have a major stress in your life, that's probably something that should naturally happen. And I, I'm guessing that you know, maybe five years from now, like people will look back and be like, oh, that was, you know, hanging out at home. We got to do a bunch of stuff we've never done before. And, you know, it's easy to forget the whole disease process at that point and what else was actually happening. But I think people will, you know, maybe miss part of the certain aspects of it, you know, because mm-hmm. it's also you know, kind of the conclusion I came to is that there's only so much I can do personally for it you know we've done a few scholarships and some donation and stuff like that and trying to stay safe and making sure your family and friends are doing well i mean outside of that i'm not gonna you know cook up a vaccine in my kitchen or (laughs) you know i'm not a virologist Mm -hmm. so there's only so much i can do on a personal level so beyond that it's like okay then what should i be doing with this time um i've been actually working on a lot more information products for <clears throat> two different companies and that kind of stuff trying to get those done as soon as possible because um, now i have time every day is like you know bill murray's groundhog day you know wake <laughs> up i can do the same morning ritual i've done my aerobic base stuff now for like 22 days in a row i think so it's i mean i don't remember the last time jody and i were talking we're like when was the last time we were even home this long in a row it was like four years ago <laughs> wow so yeah, so I think there are some, you know, definitely some benefits in it and silver lining. You know, I also think it's exposing some things that were probably in trouble on some level um, to begin with. I oh, mean, yeah. I've, I've heard the U.S. economy described as, you know, we have no redundancy. We rely on manufacturing from other countries, stuff like that. And, and we've been likened the whole economy to like a dragster, like performance. You know, it's a leading economy in the world but it's all about performance there's not a lot of redundancy or you know self-reliance in a lot of ways i mean think about how a dragster works nothing's going to touch its performance but they routinely blow engines and stuff like that and Mm -hmm. uh, and this is kind of exposing some stuff like i can tell you in academia 
you know, with everything going online and everything, um, small residential schools, even big ones, they're having to rethink a lot of stuff, right, like this fall, because so much comes from um, dorms, living in dorms or sports that happen on college campuses. Well, you're not going to fill stadiums with anybody this fall, right? So everybody's trying to rethink this even while they're asking the government for billions, you know, to, to stay afloat, period. But think about all the little colleges like mine that they support an entire town, right? An entire uh, community, a small city. Yeah, that's the thing there. Uh, so when mm-hmm. when the universities start to fail, the locals don't have employment. Uh-oh. You know, I mean, it's just – so, yeah, a lot of this stuff is sort of getting attention because, let's face it, there was already some issues with – declining enrollments in the Midwest and that kind of stuff. And and now students are thinking, well, should I go back? Should I take a semester off? Uh, what am I really doing here? You know, so it's, it's really shining a light on a lot of stuff, whether it's uh, domestic manufacturing or how we do education or like you guys are saying, like family stuff. I've been reading a lot of stuff about these high power scientists and how they're trying to work from home. You know, like they've got homeschooling for their little one. You know, with their left hand and the right hand, they're, I don't know, doing some type of, you know, calculations or something. It's just, um, I don't know, exposing kind of, you know, like a different way to do things. So I don't think we're going to come out of this uh, and just go back to the way things were before, mm-hmm. right? It's it's just going to be plain different. Um, everybody's going to have apps, tracing apps. You know, there's going to be more testing eventually. And... Um, temperature taking and all that kind of stuff. I don't know. It's just that trade-off between personal freedoms and safety. Uh, everybody has to try to find some kind of balance there, I guess. Anyway. Yeah. yeah. I think what we've seen is, and again, this is just my biased opinion. My mom was a nurse. My sister still works as a nurse who <clears throat> paradoxically was laid off because all the elective surgeries were cut by hospitals oh. and they didn't want to pay her salary. Mm-hmm. And then since she is technically no longer an employee of the two places, she could get unemployment, which doesn't really cover much and was a horrible pain in the butt. She's still going through to get. But then if she gets called back, the state will pay for her salary. So the people running the facility realized, hey, we just cut these people. And when we really need them, we won't have to pay them. I was like, oh, great. That's a nice way of treating all your employees who are in the medical facility that are already at risk just uh you know just just leave you know so but i think we've seen a lot of i think hopefully more appreciation for uh, scientists and data and especially healthcare workers and just everyone who's involved in that industry because i think it's one of those things where when you have something happen you realize like wow that was really good to have and all the people who Spent a lot of time and sacrifice doing that that you probably never hear from otherwise. And on the flip side, I think we've realized how administration of facilities is just a debacle. And that goes all the way down even to equipment, um, even drugs. <clears throat> you know, a lot of the drugs are, you know, just basic stuff. You need to run any type of surgery. You know, a lot of those are not even made in the U.S. anymore. So mm-hmm. what happens if there's a you know, a supply issue in, in China and Italy, I think, were like one of the two main manufacturers of, of a lot of common drugs. Uh-oh, now you can't even do basic surgery, much less if you're, you know, trying to put people on ventilators, intubate people, and everything else. So I think, like you said, Lonnie, that I think the economy was so set up to be 
high performance at all costs. Efficient. I don't think anyone thought of the ramifications of something like this would happen. And maybe there's some things that it's probably not going to be super cost effective, but we should have maybe facilities to make more vaccines, to make, you know, basic drugs that are off, you know, patent that, you know, every friggin' hospital needs to run, you know. So hopefully a lot of that kind of stuff, in addition to the obvious things about the, the virus and, you know, things related to that will become, I'm hoping that they'll change, but I don't know. I, I have my I have my doubts some days. Some days I'm like, yes, it's all going to be different. Other days I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Do we learn our lessons? I, I, honestly, sadly, I don't think so because I mean, if every, so far, which is really sad. <laughs> you know, Phil, you can appreciate this, but so much is based on efficiency in our uh, economy, like just in time inventory. Don't hold and warehouse inventory, manufacture it probably in another country and move it on demand, right? Or like what you said, mm -hmm. Michael, with the nursing staff, it's like, it's just efficient just to let them go right now. And then because they're not generating enough revenue given the current scenario. So it's efficient to let them go. Is it ethical? No, it's probably not. But you know, everything is so built on that 99% efficiency attempt, you know, everything's just in time, this and that. And then we don't have any stockpiles or capacity to handle almost anything else because we're running razor thin lines of operation. You know, it's just. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Let's let me talk about food a little bit here. Strength and muscle sport news. Um, because obviously the food industry has been massively impacted the World Health Organization and um, the European Commission have published some guideline documents, uh, both for the food industry, like businesses, and consumers. And the reason I'm going to bring this to everybody's attention is because, as I mentioned, I read an article, and it was just a very vanilla kind of article um, saying, you know, oh, they say this and they say that. and But there wasn't a lot of analysis. I just kind of want you guys to offer some of your thinking on this, too. So here's the deal. Um, in early March, the European Food Safety Authority, the EFSA, uh, they stated that, quote, there's currently no evidence that food is a likely source or route of transmission of the virus. Now, currently no evidence. And again, the article I was reading is like, oh, so there's no evidence for that. And it's kind of Im implying. So don't worry. There's no evidence for this kind of transmission but I just keep thinking maybe my, you know, science mind here, like critical thinking, if there's no evidence, doesn't that mean we don't know, right? I mean, what have we said yeah. over the years about the freaky pro-steroids and pre-steroids and stuff? People are like, oh, there's no evidence this will hurt you. It's like, bro, you're in uncharted territory. You, you now have liver cancer. Congratulations, you know. Uh, so having no evidence doesn't mean negative findings, Right. It doesn't mean that they did studies and they're like, no, nope, can't can't transmit it this way. It's not negative findings. No evidence. Another way to say that is we don't know. Now, maybe that's my paranoid brain and not my critical brain. I don't know. Um, but um, let me get back to this here. Um, the World Health Organization uh, reaffirms this finding, uh, but it says COVID-19 virus can remain viable for up to 72 hours on plastic and stainless steel, for up to four hours on copper, and up to 24 hours on cardboard. 
Now, this suggests um, to me, and and again, I I tend to err on the side of caution with this kind of stuff after going through all those, you know, serve safe trainings and food safety stuff and everything. But uh, we we get curbside pickup, like let's say from Walmart or something like that. And then the stuff that needs to be put in the fridge or freezer, Kelly will actually wipe it down with like a sanitary wipe thing. Um, And some of the stuff that's just cardboard and whatnot, before we even – discard the outer packaging which they suggest you do we actually leave it on the foyer of our house i mean if it's stuff like boxes of pasta or something why not just leave it out there for you know for two three days um and if there is virus on there because again i don't have enormous confidence that a walmart worker or a food service worker you know think about like mcdonald's where they if they don't give them sick leave they need to make money. They're like, listen, I don't feel good, but I have to go to work. Well, my God, you're yeah. working a drive-through. You could pump out viruses. You can infect a, a thousand people this week. But anyway, my point is, um, just out of extra caution. So we just leave it sit. The stuff that doesn't need refrigerated, we leave sit uh, in the cardboard packaging for two or three days. Then we'll we'll go stock the shelves with it and that kind of stuff. But I, and I'm going to give you everybody some guidelines from this document on this. But let's face it, we all eat. And our population that listen to this show, we eat a lot. So this stuff's going to be coming through quite a bit. Um, Phil, I know you grow a lot of your stuff and and have it butchered and all that kind of stuff. But how are you handling this whole, you know, food chain, this food delivery kind of thing and the packaging and all that? Are you, um, do you just not get much food that way or or what? The good thing is we're pretty stocked up. At all times, so I've got two freezers full of stuff. So we haven't, we haven't had to go get a lot. Oh, and we pick up a thing here and there. But I mean, we, without even trying, we have ourselves always in a pretty good position, to where we don't have to go to the store even weekly. So okay, unless we have to. So the only thing we're going to pick up now is like, hey, the, a salad feels good. You know, let's yeah. go get some fresh vegetables and things like that. But uh, mm-hmm. other than that, we're in a pretty good spot. I'm actually a little. Uh, freaked out by fresh produce not stuff that's under plastic right but like fresh mm-hmm. produce you know people kind of handle it and look at it in the grocery store or it's it's an open display i know stores are trying to limit that stuff but i'm like i don't know should i let my bananas sit for a couple of days or something i or wash it with some kind of you know um fruit and veg rinse i don't know um it's just a kind of stuff makes you think about it right because these different times it'll the virus will last on different surfaces Mike, what about you? I mean, uh, how are you dealing with the whole packaging and? Yeah, similar to Phil. I mean, we we've actually eaten through a lot of the grass-fed beef we have. We usually get like a half a cow, and then we get another quarter of a cow. Um, but we get a little bit lower on that, so we did have to order some more from the store. So we usually order from Costco, which they uh, deliver. And I don't know. I saw the same study you you saw, and they've gone back and forth a little bit on the exact time frame. You know, even like on cardboard, is it twenty four? Is it forty eight? And again, like all things with statistics, you're going to have outliers, and depends on how they did the testing and yep. blah blah blah, all that kind of stuff. So, I don't know. I just kind of probably are over precautious. So I sat down with Jody, and they're like, "All right, so here's our little protocol for food. <laughs> we have the." You know, the gloves by the door, and they'll drop it off outside. So we'll take it out of, you know, stuff that's in cardboard. We'll take it out and just leave the cardboard outside and put it in the recycling right away. Um, 
you know, other stuff that's in anything that's in a, a, a plastic container, well, same thing to you, right? We'll take a little Clorox wipey and wipe that down and and put it away. Um, if it's like mail and stuff like that, any shipments, I just put gloves on and open them up outside, throw the stuff away, um, leave them sit by the door inside for three days, maybe. Yeah. I mean, it's probably overkill because it's probably been in the box during the shipping time and things of that nature. But who knows where the box went, and you can go down all these crazy paths. Um, vegetables, we've been cooking most of our vegetables. I, I The one thing I did go back and forth on was spinach, um, but I did end up putting it into a, a veggie shake the other day. So that, I mean, the good part, you know, like most of us here, we're not really high risk either. Um, again, not not a reason to not follow any of the rules or anything like that. So I'm not super worried about it, but yet, you know, I'm going to try to control the things that I can, you know, control, do the best I can. And a lot of that may just be, you know, in times that are unknown, you just want to feel like you're doing something to help, you know, so yeah, that yeah. maybe more of that than anything else. And, you know, something does happen. I'm like, well, you know, I did what I, I thought was best and we... We took the steps we thought based on the data we had that it was good, and that's probably the best you can do at that point. Yep. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. if anybody says, gosh, you, you know, you guys are paranoid, I just just go buy your freaking groceries kind of thing. But I don't know. I mean, you got to think, Mike and I have – I mean, I teach our bloodborne pathogen training at the university, right? This is universal precautions yeah. and PPE, these are not new terms for me. <laughs> and so it just kind of it's, it makes you think along those lines, you know. Anyway – Especially when there's so many unknowns, you know, I mean, this is relatively, you know, in terms of viruses, pretty darn new, you know, so by nature, you're not going to have all the the answers and all the what ifs. And I mean, like you said, Lonnie, science is a very slow process. And granted, there's a ton of people working on it and are doing good work in that area, but it, it takes time, right? And even stuff that's published later, we find out, oops, that wasn't really entirely true either. Um, right. So just because one piece of data is published doesn't mean you can take that 100% to the bank either. Right. Yeah. I want to see some actual negative findings. Negative meaning yeah. nothing happened. They purposely – and I don't know how you would do this with a model. You can't do this with people. You know, like handle this package. Let's see if you get sick, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but some type of model suggesting no, absolutely not. You know, it, it could be something as simple as like Kelly was mentioning like – the sun direct sunlight you know uv light on the surface might decrease the viral um length you know length of time that it's viable or something like that or air circulation or whatever but let me give everybody the the gold nuggets here before we go to break the who advises companies to use personal protective equipment right so gloves masks um and promote physical distancing and stringent hygiene and sanitation measures uh, one of the things a lot of people don't realize is commercial sinks. There's three, right? So there's wash, rinse, and then there's disinfect. And that's usually like a 10% bleach solution or something like that. You sort of uh, – and we actually got just a dish bin. We just got off of Amazon, and we we created our own third compartment sink. So it, if Kelly doesn't use like high-temperature dishwasher stuff uh, and she hand-washes something, or if I do, we wash it, rinse it, and then – sort of immerse it in the disinfectant uh it's not strong disinfectant right it's very very dilute like i said a cap full of bleach in a big old container but then just Mm -hmm. let it let it sit in there for a minute or two then just let it drip dry uh that kind of stuff 
Um, here's what the European Food Safety Agency says, the EFSA says. Um, this is directly from their document. I just thought you guys, listeners, might want to know. What is the risk of COVID-19 infection from food products? Again, with the, the standard statement, there has been no report of transmission of COVID-19 via uh, consumption of food to date. The main mode of transmission is respiratory droplets. So, you know, again, that's sort of the obvious stuff that I've been reading. And it's like, okay. Um, but again, no report doesn't mean it won't happen. Um, yeah. The next portion says, what's the risk of getting COVID-19 from food packaging? Uh, it says the causal agent of COVID-19, of course, that's the illness, SARS-CoV-2 was shown to persist for up to 24 hours on cardboard, up to several days on other hard surfaces, experimental settings, etc., where they controlled for humidity and temperature. So, and again, in a real-world scenario, like you were saying, Mike, there's so many control issues. Um, yeah. You don't know. It's, it's almost like if they set the humidity just right and the temperature just right, they're going to see how long they can get the virus to last on that packaging, you know, or on that kind of surface. But in a real world setting with different airflow and, and sunlight and everything else, it could be less, but you know, we don't know. Um, and then they, they say, nonetheless, nonetheless, to address concerns that the virus is, uh, any virus present on the skin, again, from handling packages, might be able to transfer to the respiratory system, for example, by touching the face, then persons who handle the packaging, including consumers, should adhere to the you know their usual guidance like like you were saying like gloves when you handle it or wash your hands just go wash your hands with soapy water after you you know uh, get rid of the external packaging or whatever a uh, couple more things here can I get infected through the handling of food by people who may be infected so this is the kind of stuff where like I said I'm not sure I would go through a McDonald's drive through me personally I'm not telling everybody to stop doing that i mean drive through and carry out and curbside is that's how a lot of these food businesses are staying afloat i get it but i'm not sure i trust you know the 17 year old who doesn't get sick leave and is working the window at mcdonald's well i'm sure mcdonald's has very strict sanitation guidelines but again i'm just paranoid and like are they following those um on some level i'm sure they are but again, can I get infected? Again, currently no evidence. But then it says no information is available on whether the virus is resp you know that's responsible can be present on food, survive there, and then infect people. So they don't know. And I'm going to go back to the same thing. Can you show me a negative study? Because saying we don't know isn't the same thing as go for it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like I said, I think our populations learned that by guinea-pigging so many things over the years. You know, oh, this looks great. Well, great. You, what you just <laughs> did was, yeah, you got yourself a lot of side effects, and you're not any bigger. Uh, so, again, it says, theoretically, as is the case for any contact surface contaminated by, um, by an infected person, whether it's a door handle or other surface, food could also lead to indirect contamination. And, again, they go back to the washing of hands. Um Last little tidbits here. Can I get infected by the consumption of certain food? It says no information is currently available. But again, thoroughly wash your hands when you receive the food as soon as you're done. Um, this is some good stuff too. It's equally important to apply strictly hygiene, the hygiene rules in your kitchen. Uh, for example, store your food properly uh, and try to prevent contact between the food. 
I mean, I guess that makes sense, right? Cross-contamination of food, that's a, that's a long-time thing. That's not new. So, you know, don't put stuff like packaged plastic bloody meat above your produce and let it drip down in there. Like, who's going to do that? But try to keep uh, food as separate as possible. Uh, and then it basically talks about washing your fruits and vegetables, uh, you know, with essentially uh, warm water and that kind of stuff. Respect cooking instructions. And this is a good one, right? I mean, I'm not too worried that, yeah. let's say, it's on a pot. If I put that pot on the stove and I bring it up to a rigorous boil, yeah, you know, that's <laughs> been sanitized, I would think, um, mm-hmm. for a certain amount of time. And then it says fridge and kitchen services should be cleaned thoroughly with disinfectants and with increased frequency. And this is the kind of stuff I need to think about, too. Like, maybe I should go wipe down the handles and the inside of the fridge more, you know, or the countertops. Just wipe them down more. Um, so, yeah, and a good point, you guys, about we're not in really high infection areas. I think any of the three of us, but some people might be. And so, oh yeah, you know, wipe down your kitchen more. Okay. Uh, let's let's take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about ketone supplements. There's a new systematic review on whether they work or not, quote-unquote. And then there's a thing in here that might apply to you people that are in that Groundhog Day situation that Mike mentioned, where, you know, it's just meal patterns are off, schedules are off, you know, stuff like that. So we'll be back. Hello, dear ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, yeah, you know who this is. Uh, so I'm here to tell you about uh, Dr. Mike T. Nelson's uh, new book, uh, Why You Should Eat Keto. I don't do it because, I mean, look at me. Come on, I'm fabulous and I'm fantastic. Anyway, you should text uh, Keto ebook all in one word to 44222 to receive your free copy. Do it. Do it now. Hey listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh, you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what. Uh, There is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote-unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, There's enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that, and uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single-digit royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. 
Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. All right, we're back with a mostly news episode this week, everybody. This next bit of science news, uh, I'm going to target this at uh, Mike. Um, utility of ketone supplementation to enhance physical performance, a systematic review. So it starts off by saying ingesting exogenous, right, external ketone bodies has been touted uh, as producing ergogenic effects by altering substrate metabolism. However, research findings from recent studies are inconsistent, so they did a systematic review. Uh, data were extracted from 10 eligible studies, 112 participants. But again, now when you read this, it makes you roll your eyes a little. You, you women out there are going to be like, come on. 112 participants, 109 of them were men. <laughs> so <laughs> three, three ladies. So, I, wow, okay. Uh, so this is basically about men. I mean, when I do research, I wouldn't even throw in the women in that study. I would actually just say we need a different arm, right? Because what you're doing is if there are sexual uh, differences, gender differences, um, well, you know, you're going to contaminate one or the other unless you can get a little bit more balanced sample. Anyway, they look at 16 performance outcomes, lower body power, endurance performance, um, the ketone supplements were grouped as either ketone esters uh, or ketone salts and precursors. So the, the bottom line was of the, these different studies they looked at, three reported positive results, 10 reported null results, or basically nothing, and three reported negative effects of ketone supplements on physical performance compared to controls. There were similarly high levels of heterogeneity. So again, like results all over the place, if you will, between person to person. Uh, high levels of heterogeneity were detected in studies providing ketone esters and to a lesser extent studies with ketone salts and precursors. So the heterogeneity across studies makes it difficult to conclude any benefit or detriment to consuming these supplements. What are your thoughts on that, Mike? Because I know you've looked at this a lot. Yeah, I mean, I would kind of agree. I mean, it, there's there's been a few kind of just different reviews and stuff, and it's interesting. I mean, I like reading reviews because they have a lot of the data there that's put together. Um, but like you said, Lonnie, like total number of participants, 112. It's like, okay, that's if that was one thing, I'm like, okay, that's pretty interesting. If that's on, you know high-end rowing or cycling performance with ketone esters and it's one particular ester oh that's pretty interesting that's a lot of you know people especially for sports research but now when you look at it like you said it's split out over ketones it's split out over salts 
So for the listeners, there's two different types of exogenous ketones. So you can take ketones and they do make it through the digestive tract and they will increase your blood levels of ketones. So if you're measuring it, it's uh, usually the measure they use. It's called beta. Um, it's basically just one of the ketones that you're looking at. So like imagine instead of measuring glucose, you can do the same type of measurement and you can see ketones went up. The downside is the mechanisms are a little bit different. If you're taking a salt, you can get yeah, maybe one-ish, 1.5 millimolar of ketones in your blood. If you take an ester, where they're just binding it to a different molecule, you can get really high. Like we use the HVMN ester in the, the carry course that I teach. So we have people do exercise under three different conditions, fasted, uh, exogenous ketone ester, and then high carbohydrates. This is done over three days. And just look at different uh, effects on performance and cognition, a whole bunch of stuff. And with the ester, you can get really high levels of blood ketones. So now if you're looking at research and you're comparing a salt to an ester, probably not really a fair comparison because you can see different effects. You know, with the esters, we were seeing some people were hitting like four millimolar, like three. Like I'll routinely hit two and a half, sometimes three. So high. So pretty high in yeah. just like 20 to 30 minutes, right? You would, you know, for some people, they'd have to do a very strict ketogenic diet for weeks to potentially months. And even then, they may not necessarily even uh, hit those kind of levels. So on the one hand, it's super fascinating that we can give someone an ester. They can take it. They can literally be in its super high levels of ketones in their blood exogenously. Um, but, you know, when you look at the testing that was done on them, there's a lot of different testing and some of the studies, like one of the studies originally done uh, with the ketone ester, which was done by Cox, uh, they did that in conjunction with carbohydrates. So now you've got a whole bunch of other confounding factors. You've got different types of ketones. You've got what were they actually testing for performance metrics. And then uh, some of the studies actually were using carbohydrates in the background also. So it's interesting. I mean, I definitely think it's it's fascinating area for research. But I would say it's probably very soon to say that, you know, this or that is, is definitely an, an effect. Um, if I were to guess and speculate, meh, I think maybe in some cases the esters, when combined with carbohydrates, might be beneficial. But my guess there is that especially if the sport has more of a cognition effect, there's some data, I think Brandon Egan and Dom D'Agostino published a paper showing cognition benefits. I believe they used a ketone ester. Um, but for all out, just maximal performance, mm, I, I kind of have, have some of my doubts. And, you know, just anecdotal feedback from when we did it, we've had maybe like 24 people do this so far. That in general, and again, we don't have stats to, to show this, but some people, a couple people got their best PR fasted. Um, I don't think anyone actually hit a PR on the ketone ester. And then we had several people hit their best PR after a high amount of carbohydrates. Um, but what's interesting is some of the cognition scores using a Stroop test uh, were better after the ketone ester. And people reported how hard it felt. So the RPE uh, was actually better sometimes on the ketones. So that anecdotally, they'd be like, well, at like a moderate level of power, I felt like it was pretty easy but my absolute best time didn't necessarily get better so yeah 
Yeah, that sounds yeah. – it, it's actually similar to what I was concluding. I was working on a, a the fat chapter, the new fat chapter for well, yeah. one of the NSCA books and um, ketogenic diets. Uh, a lot of people, they eagerly conflate, right, some of the body comp benefits with performance, I mean, as far as consumers. And the literature just doesn't bear it out. You know, is no. a, a lot of what you're suggesting here, what you've just been sort of educating us on with this whole – this idea like an – this alternate substrate to carbs, you know, during exercise. Um, it, it, to me, it harkens back to the MCT stuff, you know, when you remember a lot of that stuff. Like, oh, <laughs> yeah. we'll give people – that's fast-acting. It's a, it's a more water-soluble fat. fat source, and then we maybe we'll put that in Gatorade, and people will get even a better performance boost because we know that something like even dilute sugar water is helpful on a lot of levels during exercise. But the MCT stuff uh, – I think they barked up the wrong tree with it, frankly. But as far as yeah, the alternate fuel, uh, that it just didn't pan out. You know, it wasn't really making people super athletes or anything like that. Um, just because you're you're giving them you're you're sort of giving a muscle cell uh, a choice. Do you want the glucose or do you want the you know the the ketone body? And I'm not sure in a in a choice where muscles can choose either. I really want to see more data on that. You right like. Oh, it's like a 50-50 mix, and we're going to slow down glycogen depletion or something like that. Because I think there's some suggestion to that. Um, but yeah. yeah. And we don't know if you give a high enough dose of maybe the esters or maybe salts, does that acutely interfere with uh, PDH enzyme, right? So pyruvate dehydrogenase, which is kind of like your gatekeeper to glycolysis or being able to run the carbohydrate end of your metabolism for speed and power really hard. Um, we know that a ketogenic diet, uh, high-fat diets, will impair that enzyme over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stellingworth has done a lot of that uh, research. And that's why giving people back a just massive ton of carbohydrates, even 24, 48 hours before a race, if they were doing a ketogenic diet, doesn't necessarily replete and replace all that speed and power that they've lost a little bit. Um, and then I also look at from performance, I haven't found anybody yet in virtually any discipline that's been winning races at an elite level doing a ketogenic diet. Now, there's some people like, you know, Zach Bidner and people like that who are absolute freaks and destroying 100 mile, you know, times and stuff. But even then, when he's racing, he uses a fair amount of carbohydrates, you know, probably not as much as other people. And he does do ketogenic and cycling of carbohydrates and things of that nature in training for sure, which I think is a different question. Um, the only time I thought that it may be an advantage, I think there was some it's a competitive paddle race of some form from like California to Hawaii. I think one of the conditions was you had to like carry all your own stuff like the whole time. So I think if you're doing some type of adventure type race where you literally have to carry everything on yourself, like you can't stop at refueling stations, you could make an argument that a ketogenic diet might be beneficial then. Maybe you get a little bit more smooth kind of output and you can carry a lot of fat and it just doesn't weigh that much. And you have a lot of fat. Even lean athletes have a fair amount of fat on their body. Right. Um, But outside of that, I haven't seen any conditions where if we're looking at just elite level performance not just bob trying to run a 5k this weekend um, i haven't seen that a ketogenic diet is better for performance 
Right. Now, <laughs> let, let me ask you, Phil, about this whole ketosis thing and ketotic diets because – my perception, right? This is just my personal bias as I'm looking online, but it looks like like the CrossFit crowd is loving like the you know uh, the super low carb paleo or ketotic diets, and uh-huh. they they believe it improves their performance. And the literature just really isn't there uh, as far as that goes. Do you see people uh, like that? They're in ketosis for body comp or performance, or do they think it's both? You know. Uh, you're seeing a big push on this carnivore stuff, um, which I mean, yeah. you could group into that. You know, you group those together. I mean, that's extremely low, low carbohydrate. But as far as the masses go, no, I'm not seeing it take hold. Not, not in strength sports. I mean, because mm-hmm. even the people like Mark Bell's pushing the carnivore stuff quite a bit, but he's still pretty quick to admit. I'm not putting words in his mouth, but I mean, when he was at his best, he was pretty fluffy and pretty strong. <laughs> you know? right. So, and he won't argue that you know he did what it took to move the most weight. Yeah. So, I mean, that still applies. Nothing has changed there. I mean, right. you want to be strong, you got to eat for it. So, yeah. you want to move the most weight anybody's ever moved. Uh, you, you don't see small people do that. <laughs> you know. Yeah. No, no little. Um, 200 pound guy is going to come out and beat Ray Williams anytime soon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? I mean, it's just not going to happen. Physics. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, but, so, yeah, I mean, it's a fad and it's definitely, it's taken another round. We've all seen it for years. Like things come back around when you say like some things are just aren't new. Um, bodybuilders being in ketosis, this is not new, right? I mean, carb control oh, is no. how people get shredded uh, for the most part, whether it's a slow pulling of carbs out of the diet, which is what I used to do over about 20 weeks, where some people just do a cyclic, you know, ketotic diet where they just won't touch carbs during the work week and then they'll refuel glycogen on the weekends, um, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of stuff. But I mean, backstage at a bodybuilding event, all you can smell is acetone on people's breath. Like this sickly <laughs> sweet, you know, that's the smell of bodybuilders to me, of competitive bodybuilders, you know. <laughs> it's not a nice smell, it's a weird smell. Um, yeah. because everybody's in freaking ketosis. So this, yeah, it's not new. Um, but again, you think about those sports, that's a very temporary state. You know, those guys, they're not going to try to build muscle and perform maximally in that state. Those guys are usually, you know, they're like five, four, four or 5% body fat and shaking, just standing there. I'm not sure, yeah. you know, they're shredded, but I'm not sure they're uh, maximally performing. Starvation. Yep. Yep. So... I mean, what year did the anabolic died. diet book come out? Oh, I mean, exactly. Oh, that was, it was years ago. Yeah, I uh, mean that's that? and that's <laughs> 2003, maybe. Yeah, it's a while ago. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I mean, I mean look at the Pano you know, stuff too. That was like super early too. Yeah. Yep. So. Exactly. Now I'm looking to see when it was. I don't know if I'll be able to find it, but right. Well, I'm on Amazon. It says anabolic diet paperback, 1995. Oh, oh 95. Oh, that was so, way off. yeah, yeah. Look, <laughs> look at that. I mean, head of his time. Uh, yeah, 25 years ago. Yeah, you know, yeah. It, we got nothing new showing up, people. So, right. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, yeah. Nobody I think was. The carnivore thing is interesting. I, I'm surprised it's still around as much as it. I don't know. I kind of thought it was going to die out sooner than what it did. Me too. Me too. More popular now than ever. But mm-hmm. I, I do think that that 
opens a little bit of a window because if you have super high levels of protein, right, we can convert some of that protein to carbohydrates. Yeah. Right. And if your sessions are only maybe a half hour, 60 minutes in the gym and your protein's like super high and you get some fat and other stuff, yeah, I think you might be okay. You know, yeah. and if you add someone on top of that who's had digestion issues just from who knows what and you know doing basically a, a very heavy elimination diet which is basically a carnivore type diet they definitely may clean up some of those things and pulling fiber out temporarily could be beneficial if mm-hmm. you've got the wrong bacteria and all that kind of stuff so i think you can see a lot of benefits from it in some people i don't know if that's going to mean that it's the best thing ever for everybody and yeah. i'm sure what you're going to see next is carnivore and then Ooh, let's just add some vegetables to it. Oh, you mean so we're back to kind of like eating healthy and having like a paleo high protein <laughs> bodybuilder diet again. And then right. oh, that rice on weekends will be okay. So like two days, it's okay now. And then you're back to the same shit you were before. <laughs> yep, yep. You know, a lot of that stuff when it comes to these uh, the, the ketotic stuff, a lot of it is energy system dependent, right? I mean, this is sort of like XFIS 101. If you're doing all our efforts of like four to eight seconds – you know, that sort of phosphagen system, it's not as dependent, you know, directly on glycogen. If you're, unless you're doing set after set after set very repetitively, you know, or if you're doing 30 second Wingate sprints, yeah, you're going to suck, I think, if, if you don't oh, have yeah. any glycogen stores and that kind of stuff, you know. Um, so a lot of it just depends. I think that's where those performance tests are going to come out where you can see like maybe an Olympic lifter might actually be able to get away with it. Like, boom, perform, mm-hmm. and then that was it. Yeah. That's the yes. end of the performance. And, you know, and it's not this like 30-second all-out effort or you know, um, if there's not a ton of repetition involved, then, yeah, you could probably get away with the real low-carb diets a little bit more effectively, I would think. Um, but. Yeah. I always think of strongman because strongman obviously you have to be big, you have to be strong. But people forget that there's a lot of cardiovascular component mm-hmm. to that, and doing medleys of thirty to sixty seconds—that's like lactate city. Yeah, and to do yeah. that over and over, you know, for the next event and next event, and yeah, I, right. that that to me is I, a lot. I, the first thought of fuel I think of is yeah, get enough protein and then just a lot of carbs. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just don't see how they do it on low carb, right? Those sustained Oof. repetitive strength no. efforts. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Oh, one more because we're almost out of time here. Uh, this harkens back to Mike's comment about Groundhog Day these days <laughs> d- during the, like, the lockdown. Every day just seems the same, you know, and there's not as much of a schedule. And I'm sure a lot of people are talking about this, you know. Um, I, I'm going to start with asking Phil a question to set this up because this is a study about meal timing and whatnot. Are you eating breakfast, Phil, personally? Like, do you get up and eat? How do you do it? Right now, I haven't been. Usually, yeah. I'm the type of person that I wake up and I get something right away. Mm-hmm. But it's usually something small. But, you know, right now, I mean, I'm so busy doing stuff. I, I'm one of those people that tend to, when I'm not in meat mode, I can forget to eat for hours. So, no, I, I don't religiously have a time set where I eat. Okay. Yeah. So. And when Phil says meat mode, he means M-E-E-T, everybody? <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. And that's where I, I make sure I eat all the time. So okay, yeah. Right now is the times where I relax, and there'll be days like, oh, oops, it's two. I forgot to eat. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, 
Yeah, but I mean, I end up getting it all in. So no, you're right. I mean, when I used to have to drive to work for an hour, you know, at five o'clock in the morning, I would make sure I wolfed up some my oats and berries before I left because I just knew I wouldn't get to eat until one. You know, Um, and now that that's not there, so sometimes like like I was mentioning earlier, we'll go for fasted walks. We'll get up, have nothing but coffee Mm -hmm. or black tea, and we'll just hoof it around the neighborhood for thirty or forty minutes. So in a sense, I'm skipping breakfast. You know, I mean, when I come home, I, I eat then, but it's not, it's not at like five o'clock in the morning like it used to be, you know? Yeah. Uh, now, let me, before I read this study, Mike, what about you? Are you trying to like get the whole <laughs> molecular machinery rolling at a certain time with a meal when you get up or, or are you doing the intermittent fasting and waiting till noon or, or what are you doing? Right now I do one longerish fast once per week. Uh, cause my goal is more body composition. So about 19 to 24 hours, but just once a week. And I played around with, I definitely do aerobic training in the morning. I do that fasted. After that, I was kind of waiting uh, with the meal. And then I dropped my meals to just only like three per day. And lately, I've just started tossing in in the morning some collagen and essential amino acids just as of yesterday to see if that helps because my legs and mid-back have been pretty much sore for two weeks straight now. (laughs) And I don't know if that's because I'm not used to uh, biking or doing that much uh, rowing repetitively in the morning. Mm -hmm. And then I left my lifting schedule the same. So I'm still lifting five days a week. Again, it's nothing super, super intense, more volume based stuff. Um, And then my calories are a little bit lower also. So that could be something um, related to it. Uh, Sleep definitely went up. Like I've been like nine hours and 40 minutes, I think, was my average sleep for this like past week. Wow. So, yeah, so this morning I tried different. I did my got to do my aerobic stuff this morning, and then I ate uh, right before uh, we hopped on the podcast here. So I'm going to try to push that meal a little bit earlier and then push my whole schedule again even a little bit earlier and then add a fourth meal that's just more protein and veggies and that kind of stuff. Uh, that'll bump my protein back up a little bit higher and see if that helps. So, yeah, I've kind of done all of the above. I think it just depends on, you know, what your what your goals are and that type of thing. I don't think if you miss one meal, your all the muscle is going to fall off you or anything like that. Yeah. But mm-hmm. you know, if muscle is your number one priority, you are kind of missing out on a time. You could have, you know, protein synthetic response running. Yeah, most of the acute data on that, like you've seen, Lonnie is three to probably five meals per day. I mean, there isn't a ton of data I've seen to say that three is horrible compared to four or five. Right. Um, so you're kind of in the theoretical land there. So I'll, you know, tweak it a little bit and see if that helps. And, and who knows, right? Maybe all of a sudden my doms gets better, but it had nothing to do with that. And it's the fact that I'm just used to doing it now. <laughs> so yeah. you never really know why. Yeah. Some of what you're saying is reminiscent when we interviewed uh, Bill Campbell or Mike Ormsby, you yeah. know, like is the timing of the meals. Is it make or break? It may not be like your body, the, your homeostasis, your even keel metabolic corrections. It just ruins a lot of these clever plans, <laughs> I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. But so this is something for for you guys. And again, for listeners, if you're if your schedule's out the window and you're not eating breakfast, um this is not a causal study, but this says this is from labroots.com, uh, just a news catcher kind of thing. Annie Lennon, skipping breakfast increases risk for heart disease death by 87%. Uh, 
Now, Holy I'm, I'm like, whoa, what? That, I mean, that's almost a doubling of your risk. Yes. So according to the old adage, breakfast is the most important meal of the day, but is that really so? Uh, researchers from the University of Iowa examined data from 7,205 adults between the ages of 40 and 75. So we're talking about middle age and older here, but with no history of cardiovascular disease. Okay. Uh, basically, they figured out from a uh, survey. Anyway, this was in Korea. Okay. So I don't know. This is from the University of Iowa, but uh, some of the national survey was conducted in Korea. They looked at a 10-year period. And again, this is epidemiology, folks. This is not cause and effect. But in the end, they found that people who reported not eating breakfast were 87% more likely to die from cardiovascular-related illnesses than those who ate breakfast every day. According to uh, the lead author of the study, his last name is B-A-O, Bao, uh, the finding itself is very straightforward for people who skip breakfast regularly um and they have increased risk of cardiovascular mortality and total mortality uh it says not surprising because previous studies have found that skipping breakfast is related to more hypertension diabetes and other cardiovascular risks now this seems a little bit dramatic to me um i'm not i'm not really invested one way or the other eat breakfast don't i usually try to eat some breakfast but uh it does say there were some limitations for example this kind of um you know um population broad study the researchers didn't have any information on what the people were eating for breakfast you know the ones who did mm-hmm. uh and stuff like that so it's kind of back to your point mike earlier when it comes to viral uh transmission and whatnot like what are the controls here you know what what is this study designed to do and they didn't even have information on what the breakfast eaters actually ate mm-hmm. just that they tended mm-hmm. to be better off and again these are correlations right they're just relationships but when you see 87 percent that i don't know that that's and again when they start previous studies you know agreeing about all these cardiometabolic risks from skipping breakfast i've never seen anything like that before so yeah that's that sounds pretty crazy um so i don't know food for thought for everybody if you are like if what you've heard from Phil and Mike and I think myself is we're at least thinking about this. Like, you know, it's nice to be in a fat-burning mode and go do your little cardio in the morning or whatever. Um, it, but there's method to any of what we're doing. It's not completely random. Like, I don't know, I'm just in a funk and I don't know what hour it is or even what day it is, you know. And <laughs> yeah. when my stomach grumbles, I eat. And, you know, <laughs> so maybe people are skipping breakfast. This might suggest don't do it all the time. Like, don't, yeah. maybe not all the time. I don't know. So. I just want to throw one thing out there because I posted it last night. I am, <clears throat> I'm over this thing. So, <laughs> and I'm doing a contest. So I just want to see people lifting. Anyways, I put it up there. Put up some videos of you lifting, squat, bench, deadlift, all three. You put them up. I'm going to pick one man, one woman next Friday. And they're going to get three months of training for free. So I'm going to coach right. two people for three months for free. So, uh, and yeah, like I said on the post, we'll do it. Weight will matter, but I'm also just looking at, you know, how you do it, what kind of person you are, you know, are you excitable? Are you, you know, look like you're going to be fun to coach. So oh. put it up. I'll pick two random people and uh, you'll get coaching for three months. That's cool. So, you, you know, Phil, I was just thinking about with so few sporting events this fall, it made me think about what you were 
um, backing before with literal competition, lifting competitions where yeah. you video yourself from the front and the sides. We might see more yeah. of that kind of yeah. stuff. Maybe that's an opportunity, you know? Yeah, exactly. So I just want to see. I'm, I'm tired of my news feed being full up with the COVID crap. Oh, I, I want know. to see some lifting. So. I know. I should apologize <laughs> to everybody for <laughs> we're rambling about it ourselves now, you know? Yeah. At least we're bringing a fitness angle to yeah. it. Okay. Well, that's going to be it, everybody. Yep. Have a good one. See you. Hey, listeners. Have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store. One for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry. And they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store, uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun, heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good. Uh, Knee sleeves. Wraps of some kind. Things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, The stuff you you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.